Hi, I'm here in Prospect Park on April 20th, 2017. I'm about to do an oral history with uh, my friend here. And uh, for the New York Trans Oral History Project, uh, which seeks to record the stories of trans and gender nonconforming folks uh, in New York, um, as told in their own words. Um, I guess one, the way I would like to start is uh, if you could tell me um, where you were born and a little bit about that, that place. Mm-hmm. I was born in Tehran, Iran, uh, which is a beautiful city, country, um, that uh, unfortunately somehow <laughs> through the long arc of history um, is seen as the axis of evil here and also has its own uh, history um, that is complex and complicated, um, especially for, um, for queer people. And what was it like uh, growing up in Iran? Were you there throughout your childhood? or No, I was actually... So the story of my migration slash immigration or whatever you want to call it, um, when I was two or just before I was two, my father was accepted into university in the States, which is a big deal, and especially for him because he didn't really come from that class that you know, kind of sends out, especially from Iran, there's a, like a class that just sends their children out to to European or um, or American school or U.S. schools. Um, and he, was, he didn't come from that class. So it was a big deal for him to get into this, to get into uh, this program and to, to go. And so he did, and it was in 1977, so it was before the revolution. Um, and... Um, so he came to the United States. He came to Philadelphia, and uh, I, my mother and I followed not too long after that. And uh, if anybody knows any history of Iran, two years after that, which was right in the midst of his uh, program, there was a revolution uh, that overturned the Shah, and so there was a lot of unrest there. Um, and then a sort of shifting of power... Uh, and then shortly thereafter, there was a, a long war, decade-long war with Iraq, the, the neighboring country Iraq, and that was a devastating war for both sides. Um, and in Iran, like in many countries in the world, uh, as a as a male, you have to have voluntary mil- uh, military, uh, uh, whatever it's called, you service. yeah, service. Thank you. And so my father did have that. So there, when he was done his program, it was, uh, he wasn't really done his program, sorry, but when he was at a point where it looked like we could go back for him to finish his, you know, dissertation or this or that, he would have had to serve. And so we were in this position, which was really lucky that we were in this position um, where he could stay in the United States to finish this program um, and avoid going back and being participating in the in the war um which is like i said it was really devastating about a million people on both sides um who were killed and um if you can you said your family didn't belong to sort of the affluent class that um educates their children in the west what what sort of 
class or what sort of uh, background did your family have? If you could tell me a little bit about that. Uh, it's interesting because it's hard for me to even find that translation, um, mostly because I don't know, because I was so young when I came here that I understand class in a different way. Um, I understand it in terms of, of how it works within the U.S. system. So the only thing I can, the only way I can translate it, to me this makes sense, is he was a, he came, my father came from a middle class, like the kind of middle class that was, um, uh, you kind of stuck stuck to home and it was a big deal if you got into a big place and you got to leave were they originally from Tehran or did they come from a village or um, as far as I know they're longtime uh, city people um, I think my grandfather my father's side came from a village now this is my father's side uh, my mother's side is a different story they had that they come from a line of I don't, I don't know, Eve, I don't even know how to, to identify this class, but more affluent. Um, my uncles all, it was a given they went to England to study. Um, and so they're, you know, they're both of my uncles on my mother's side live in the United States and are very successful, let's say, whatever that means. But in a, in, a, in the eyes of, of um, how Americans see um, uh, success and in terms of, of immigration in particular, they're very successful. So one runs his own company, but actually both have are very big players in some in whatever companies. I don't keep track to be honest. <laughs> they're so, doing well. So your family came from so they were, uh, I mean, in a way, the way I think of it is like a uh, family that's been tied to the city for a long time and that maybe they had property, but not, mm -hmm. but weren't exactly like, mm -hmm. they didn't have like farmers farming for them mm -hmm. and other places kind of thing. Yeah, yeah exactly. So my grandfather was a, an accountant, so he wasn't, uh, you know, he wasn't um, uh, poor or didn't come from a small village although his lineage might have, um, and he might have been one of the ones who came to the city uh, to, to earn a living or whatnot. But my mother said no, they probably came from a merchant class. My guess would be a merchant class, but I don't know. I don't know, and it's, really, it's, it's weird, but it's, uh, when you come to this country, this, this need to assimilate is so strong that I sort of don't even really know because we don't talk about the past and we don't talk about um, cultural differences. It's just something that because I want to explore that and I want to understand who I am and where I come from and why I am the way I am, that I'm, I even think about things this way. So your family came to, you came to Philadelphia in 1977. Mm -hmm. uh, your father was in graduate school. Mm -hmm. um, and so you, you grew up in Philadelphia mm -hmm. for the most part? Yes, yeah, so we traveled around some apartments in Philadelphia while he was studying, and then, um, and then my mom got into a master's program um, outside of Philadelphia in Chester, Pennsylvania, and so then we started uh, moving out to like uh, first-tier suburbs. Um, working-class suburbs of Philadelphia in apartment apartments or apartment buildings in these 
in these suburbs and then um then uh yeah so i grew up in philadelphia in morton pennsylvania and then in chester pennsylvania um they bought a house and we lived there for a while and then in uh true immigrant fashion uh when it was time for me to go to and this is a story i tell i'm sure my mother would tell it a different way my father perhaps a different way but when it's time for me to go to high school they um, bought the smallest house in uh, Cherry Hill, New Jersey, which if anybody knows this area at all, the tri-state area and southern, southern tri-state area uh, of Philadelphia anyway, um, it's a very affluent, uh, predominantly Jewish um, uh, suburb of Philadelphia in New Jersey. So they bought the smallest house so that I could go to a good high school to get a good college education to have a great life. And uh, that's the story I tell anyway. So they, uh, it was a big cultural shock. But I, so I went to high school in Cherry Hill and then promptly left in college and moved to Philadelphia and never looked back. So can I ask a, a little bit before high school, mm-hmm. um, did you grow up around a lot of Iranians? Did you grow up speaking Farsi? Can you tell me a little bit about that? Mm-hmm. Uh, what's weird is that my mom, so my mom spoke Farsi to me, and so uh, she was very much, um, she wanted to make sure that I knew the language. And so when I was growing up, probably... 9, 10, 11, 12 years old up till teeny, early teenage, maybe 13, 14, I went to Farsi classes. My father, on the other hand, was very interested in assimilation <laughs> and would only speak English to me, probably because when we first landed, when we first came that first year, I didn't know any English. I was a baby. You know, how do you teach? I spoke, I mean, there are tapes of me speaking fluent Farsi at three, two, three. Um, telling elaborate stories about, you know, princesses or whatever in, in other language, in Farsi. Um, so back to the question about language. Um, so my mom really wanted to make sure that I knew Farsi and I knew how to read. And uh, so what was the question again, actually? Well, did you grow up also around other Iranians? No, other Iranians. Yeah, so sometimes, but sometimes not. So there's this thing... Well, another thing that's interesting about Iran in particular and the revolution and the immigration pattern or the ref, you know, the refugee pattern that, that happened um, in the late 70s, early 80s is that uh, a lot of, because the Shah or the king was overturned, a lot of people who ended up in the United States were sympathizers with the Shah or part of his regime or somehow affiliated with him or people that this, like... Uh, other movement uh, wanted out. So uh, they, we didn't really, because we didn't really fit in with them. So they, I didn't really grow up around a lot of Iranians. And in fact, I remember this one that I thought was like my best friend. Um, I really, I admired her. It was like she, her family was everything that, you know, we could have hoped for for ourselves she was everything that I wished I could have been Uh, later looking in hindsight uh, I realized that there was like a huge class thing there Um, 
they were like really the only people that we hung out with and and would know outside of our own family and they both the mother and the father were doctors none of my family had that you know kind of access to money and um she had very little interest in me (laughs) so I think like she would just hang out with me when we would go over to their house because she was sort of forced to (laughs) Um, so we didn't really hang out with so many Iranians because they usually had a lot of money um, and they escaped with money or they anyway even if they didn't have money they aspired to that Um, or they were doctors or lawyers or engineers and we just we were very we were different so we had some Iranian friends, but not many. And actually what I do want to say is that uh, there was a long time in this country where if you knew another Iranian, they either were very well educated or very successful. But my memories of being very, very young is knowing Iranians who were cab drivers, for example, or my mom, when we first came to this country uh, in the 70s, in the late 70s, she worked um, at this like sort of factory that would sew sequins on dresses on like wedding dresses so it was like a very different mentality um, and a very different kind of uh, class of person that we knew or that we I don't know that that we my parents would hang out with or knew Um, and that sort of disappeared um, in the early 80s. We just didn't hang out with Iranians. They were just too different than us. Can you um, tell me a little bit, did your family, so it sounds like you hung out with people that were more uh, working class, middle class, etc. And then obviously the the revolution had had effects on um, immigration patterns, etc. Can you tell me a little bit, did your family feel pressure to align themselves with a certain politic at that point? Was there that pressure living in the U.S. then? Did you, I mean, I know you were a kid, but I'm just curious if they felt that at all, or align themselves with a certain way of, like, being Iranian in this country? Uh, In terms of, like, the American political climate, or Iranian, or both, or either? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's hard. It's really hard with my family to get any. Yeah, I don't. I don't know. The other byproduct of maybe this is particular to my family only, or maybe this is a byproduct of a certain class. I really don't know. But my my family doesn't really talk about that so much. But I do know there's a, there was a lot of Marxist books in my on the my father's bookshelves uh, growing up, um, and um, I know that he. Um, would have aligned himself with uh, like a certain leaning would have been more of a like a um, socialist not today actually he probably wouldn't have been but he really was He, I know his father really believed in um, the tenets of the revolution and, and the, in particular like the the sort of Marxist reasoning behind it um, and he would have too although I don't know once the war happened it was a lot of uh, in my house in the household that I grew up in 
there was a lot of shortwave radios. There was a lot of don't talk, they're talking about the war. There was a lot of focus on that, um, on the war and what was happening. Um, and a lot less, I, maybe it was because I was too young at the time to really understand uh, the, the byproduct of the revolution and the sort of vacuum of power that happened in this and the um, you know the Ayatollah coming in and taking over I, I don't know if I was too young to really understand that impact on my family but we didn't really talk about that as much and the way it ended up looking was there's a lot of you know um, sadly there was although we lived in the city uh, lived in Um, Philadelphia proper then lived in these suburbs and lived in apartments much less uh, within these suburbs and then Chester Pennsylvania which is a very um, uh, it's a uh, polarized city um, and racially divided city um, with uh, unbelievable poverty tied to race um, and class obviously that uh, they had some kind of way of thinking especially my father who's a little you know the one who talks more about politics but he could talk about politics and uh, sort of egalitarianism and but in a day-to-day living and action you know really couldn't be that person that he talked about you know, so he ended up, so, you know, he's, he's got, definitely has a lot of classism, racism, less classism, more racism. Um, I grew up with a lot of that and it was like right at my doorstep. So while they might have some political leaning, the way it manifested with me wasn't like go play with your friends outside in this apartment complex it was like you can't play with that person who lives across across literally the downstairs and one over because of whatever reason because their class race I don't know why what their reasoning was but it was um, you know that's the way it looked when I was growing up does that sort of answer your question? I feel like yeah. I meandered a bit. No, I, I remember um, in college a professor saying, um, how do you turn a Middle Eastern immigrant in the 70s from a socialist to a Republican? And the answer was um, a flight. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, basically. Although my, my parents would, you know, they vote, they're citizens, and they vote Democrat. They're, you know, they're like that... It's so complex. It's like the kind of racism that is never, ever addressed and classism that runs so deep. um, That's, you know, runs so deep that in this kind of particular situation, they left when they were in their 20s. And so we, I've had um, all of this time to, to... in, within the same culture to reflect upon my own, you know, privilege or upbringing or, you know, um, 
or oppression or, you know, I've had all of this time to be able to reflect upon it, to have conversations about it, to understand its complexity, to read about it within the same culture. And they were never, they didn't have that. So they had their experiences until they were in their mid twenties. And then at a time where I think in our culture now, you really start talking about it and you're really engaged. Then they left and came to this completely different culture with a total different set of rules um, and never really got to uh, process who they are, who they are, and why they believe in what they believe in, and you know how that manifests in this world. You know. Thanks. Um, thanks for that. That's. I think that's a really poignant uh, reflection on our generation of, you know, refugees, immigrants, etc. Um, I'm wondering if you could tell me a little bit about what it was like going to school um, and if, if you if you could tell me like a story or give me give me a sense of the atmosphere of what it was like going to school at least before high school and then I can ask you about high school later <laughs> yeah high school is awful um, <laughs> maybe we don't talk about it no we can talk about it it might be triggering I'm kidding um, so it, it's two different ways it looked two different ways so before uh, in Philadelphia, it was um, in the '70s. It was Montessori school, and there are some of the yeah, some of the best memories of my life. I can't even believe I remember some of the things. Like up until I was five, I remember um, through that Montessori school. One of my earliest memories around uh, around anything, friendship, language, uh, actually happened in that Montessori school, and that was. Um, I just remember like going down in this area to want to play with this kid and I must have been three years old um, and uh, I must have been two actually I must have been somewhere in between two and three at this Montessori nursery school and um, uh, the kid just I was like so eager to play with him and then he just like had this like sort of foam I, in my imagination now it's a foam long tube thing and he just started hitting me with it and I started crying and then I you know this very nice person picked me up and I got to be held for the rest of the day but when I think back about it I probably couldn't speak a lick of English <laughs> and he was like had his thing about that at a very early age and, and that's the way it looked um, so there are two sides of it uh, there's you know schooling as a young up until um, up until ninth grade, I was in a suburban Springfield uh, elementary school. Um, there was it was just you know there's a lot of racism. I had this one. I had teachers who just hated me for no other reason than I was Iranian. I mean, also at that point, it's the early '80s. There's or the, the hostage crisis has happened. There's uh, you know there. There's, uh, you know, in this country, people didn't really like Iranians. Um, so I, you know, I remember things like, uh, you know, being really good at math because it was trained in me <laughs> from my engineer mother and my architect father that you, you had to be good in math. And so they practice math with me and I'm not even nine years I mean at nine we left and moved somewhere else so I must have been seven or eight years old and doing math and um, 
there's a day where it was my turn to go up and you know do the math assignment up on the board and I there were three people so the game was there are three of you and whoever answers this math thing quiz or whatever the fastest up on the board gets a lollipop so I finished first of course because I've been trained and because every minute of every second of every day and every toy that I had was around math um, <laughs> I finished first and that teacher said you were cheating and I'm not going to give it to you I saw you counting with your fingers and so you know 41 year old me turns around and is like I don't care if I was using my fingers like I finished first that was the rule and I wasn't using my fingers I know what 7 plus 3 is you know without using my fingers so it goes from that and then after um so she same woman man she dumped out my desk she hated me she made life really really hard so that was that was hard I sort of maybe disengaged from school at that point a little bit and then after that we moved to Chester and then this is I talked about um sort of the racist structure in our family so Chester Pennsylvania is a very racially divided city there's literally a highway that divides the black part of town from the working class Irish part of town and it really is that and it's really poor um, in the African-American side um, and devastated um, so my parents took me to when we moved there they took me to a Catholic school so here's a Muslim <laughs> Middle Eastern Iranian in 1980 I was in I was in, I'm trying to think of what grade I was in when we moved, because I was in ninth grade when we moved to New Jersey to this affluent suburb, so, and I'd lived there for four years, so it must have been fourth grade. So a nine-year-old, here's this nine-year-old who is going to this Catholic school, and it's an Irish, it's a white Italian-Irish Catholic school that this was the first year they let people from outside of the parish go to the Catholic school probably because they needed money to get taught by like the likes of Sister Agnes so it was me and a group of African American kids and we're nine years old so there's already uh, so then that's I think the very first place where I understood what it kind of felt like to be in between these races and the racial dynamics um, of that because the white people didn't like me or the Irish Italians didn't like me um, the black folk didn't really like me um, or it's not like they liked me or didn't like me there was just they had their own group going and uh, but there wasn't that hatred like the there were there definitely was a hatred that was coming from these like these white Irish Catholics and yeah Italian and Irish Catholics definitely felt the hatred <laughs> there um, and the first like first or second week I got some kind of a suspension because I was apparently a part of a fight I had nothing to do with the fight I was nowhere near the fight I mean the entire school was there looking at this fight and I, I think I must have been like what's the commotion and right away I got a suspension and I, you know it was just it was challenging uh, it, but at the same time, here I am every single day in a Catholic school 
being taught by, like I said, the likes of Sister Agnes, who, uh, w- who would, when she would teach about like whatever, I think it was religion, she would put her crotch up against the desk and push in. So here I am, I'm nine years old and I'm looking at this nun who's teaching us about religion and I don't know, it, that really, honestly was the first time I, I think I thought about sexuality is when I was looking at what she was doing that I'm sure everybody who was nine in that room was like, what is she doing? And, and like knowing what that felt like to push the corner of a desk right into your crotch as a cis, you know, like someone who has female parts uh, or a cisgendered well, it's not even that, just anyone who has female parts. Just, uh, yeah, and thinking, holy shit, what the, you know, what's happening here? Um, so that presented its own challenges. I'm sitting here and I'm thinking about religion and I'm thinking about these things that, you know, coming, these Catholics are like, you know, kind of like pushing down your, your throat, going to church, part of going to a Catholic school that I went to for four years was going to church. And so, you know, you want to, at, in this church, you want to, you know, like, like a kid would want to, like a 9, 10, 11-year-old would want to, would want to be one of the people who's chosen to, to like, read a sermon or something. Um, it's really wild. I don't think I've ever talked about this to anyone, so it's really kind of wild to talk about that that young person and what that young person must have been thinking or going through both you know as far as sexuality was concerned I have another story around gender that it was like that time was just such a rich time in uh, for any young person um, and here it, it was happening within this place in Chester in this like you know very divided city in this this Catholic school with Sister Agnes leaning against her desk. Um, so, um, that was a hard place also because, you, you know, hard and not hard. I mean, I feel like that's really where I understood um, who I was, I think, within this uh, American political racial landscape. Um, I think that was the place where it was the most evident and the most clear because the um, working class suburb that I lived in before, just, I was, you know, I was like, who, and maybe I was too young to really understand what, what all of that was about and all the hatred and all that was about. Definitely in the upper middle class Jew, predominantly Jewish neighborhood, it was more like, oh, you know, we're tolerant people, um, so we accept you kind of mentality. But this was really the place I, I saw what what it really is, this what this country really is about. Um, and it was, it's just, it's a, yeah. So were you it's ever invited to read a homily at the... I think, yeah, I think I've, homily, yeah. Holy shit. Dude, I went to yeah, right? Oh, man, I forgot all those words. Yeah, I mean, I, I think once a year I was able to, you know, because I, I asked. I think I actually asked. I can't remember, but I think I actually asked because it wasn't fair that I wasn't able to. Um, so the other thing that 
happened around then is my um, uh, at nine, so really young. My uncle, who was also, you know, one of the ones who was sent off. My mom's brother was one of the ones who was sent off to the to the to England to go to school and then continued his studies in the United States to, despite the revolution, despite the war, and you know, all this stuff with all that access that the fa- part of the family had. Um, lived with us in this house and one day my mom said why don't when he first moved in oh why don't you take uh me to she didn't say why don't you take me but she offered to him or asked him to take me to uh the salon to get my hair cut (laughs) (laughs) and as a nine-year-old and I remember distinctly I was nine um I was so excited because that meant I could ask for whatever haircut I wanted so I walked in and this is when I'm nine let's see nine it was like I was in fourth grade 1984 I I was like can I have a buzz cut with a tail to like this five dollar haircutting place and that woman who was cutting my hair was like refused to do it (laughs) my uncle could care less he's like 19 years old or when I'm nine, yeah, he was like 21 years old. He's a kid. He, all he knows is he's like, you know, reading the newspaper. He's so checked out and in his own world in his early 20s. And uh, so what she did is gave me a really short clipped cut and a tail. And my mom was so mad. <laughs> but I didn't get my tomboy um, buzz cut like I wanted. I had to wait later in life for that. Um, so then... Ch- do you want me to talk about New Jersey and Cherry Hill and high school and all that? If you would like to, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it is, it was what it was. Is like, I think that's really what defined me as a human being is people just ignore you kind of, but they don't really ignore you. They're just, you're there, but you're not really a part of the group. Um, I went from Chester where, you know, it really at the time was one of the um, most depressed cities like a full city in the United States um, to a really affluent neighborhood and with people who had so much money I can't even imagine. Um, Anyway, so... uh, Yeah. I, uh, yeah, it was hard. I think in the very beginning it was really hard because that's... I was going through puberty, and I wasn't gracefully going through puberty. Um, also, I was always uh, more boy-identified than not, and uh, that was kind of, you know, in a, in a in that kind of an environment, in a upper-middle-class environment, it's like you're kind of it's a it's uh they're gender binaries (laughs) did you play sports well the thing with playing sports I would have liked to yeah I tried I tried to play um field hockey and uh, I was gonna guess lacrosse well the thing is though (laughs) you have to be accepted to play those team sports and um I was so not accepted like I came I mean I was coming from up until I was 12, I was wearing a uniform to school, and then I didn't really have, you know, my parents, 
aren't very fashionable people. You know, they're not they're not going to they're not going to like you know Nordstroms or whatever to buy their clothes or wherever people go to buy their clothes in in the suburbs. There, they just they never had their eye on that ever. Um, so I didn't either. I didn't understand that, and so all I had was like 80s television to inform me, which is kind of scary. Um, and then my own need and want to to like be a boy. And that was definitely not accepted uh, at that time. Not in any of the places I went to go buy clothes or not in my household. It was just, it was, yeah. So I had no idea how to dress. So people didn't really accept me in the very beginning. Um, they just, I was just there. And then after a few years, you know, you're just there and you're not offensive. And so then people, like, they don't even really like you. They're just, you're just there. You just exist. And then I found a few friends and they were they were the punks usually or the then turned into being like from the punks to the ravers to the people who didn't really have an identity. And they, but they knew they were in that subculture. Um, and mostly like people who were working class. In fact, one of my favorite people, Jen, uh, she in hindsight looking back you know she she drove a her grandmother's car that like didn't have a muffler was really loud didn't have a radio she would have the walkman sometimes she would drive me we'd go to the diner um and we'd listen to um oh my god heaven or las vegas who is it Cocteau Twins. Cocteau Twins. We'd listen to the Cocteau Twins <laughs> with, she would have, like, you know how on the headphones you could take your, the ear things off? She would put one ear on hers and I would put the other one and we'd be driving in this car that was like, <laughs> and it was like a grandmother car. It was painted white. It was like half falling apart. You'd expect the tires to come flying off. Um, but she had to use her grandmother's address because she didn't live in that area. She lived in an area which would have taken her to another school that, you know, her mom didn't want her to go to and so she had an inn to get into this like very prestigious Cherry Hill public school system which is also the reason I was there um, so she had to drive herself to school and that was uh, that was a big deal um, so yeah I had these friends that were sort of these outsiders um, and I found my way through them and through that but uh, otherwise, I, didn't, I couldn't play lacrosse. I had to play a solo sport. Like, I played one year of field hockey, and it was really apparent that I, was not, I did not belong. So then I had to play tennis because it's a solo sport. You don't have to play. I mean, you have to find somebody, but if you're on the team, you play against someone, but you don't have to interact with anyone ever. Um, and I played that until I started shaving my head and becoming a little more, you know, punk. And, uh, and then I was like, fuck that shit. When, when did that happen? junior when I was a late sophomore junior early junior yeah somewhere around then in high school so um can you tell me a little bit about like coming to terms with your sexuality then yeah I actually have a beautiful story about this about sexuality gender you know gender identity was different I think that's something that was so much more organic um that like I just I, I just felt in, like there was a point 
and I don't even remember when it was, but there was a point in which I said, I, I don't feel comfortable in women's underwear. Like, I just won't. And my mom is the only one who ever had to interact with me on that level. And thank, thank God she is. My mother is amazing. She has whatever she has around sexuality, um, like, you know, through her, just through her upbringing or through her own awareness, uh, her own, uh, uh, what is it, um, her own uh, dislike of, of nonconformity. Um, but through me, she had, she kind of had no choice and just, I think understood and saw it as so organic that it just was was it what it was and so she would buy me boxer shorts because I could not wear women's anything and then I was sort of so I just want to talk about gender because I think that was a I have a beautiful story about sexuality in high school and all that but gender really happened before that um and it was so looking back I I just it was so beautiful I'm so lucky that I had that experience. Um, my father didn't understand and definitely at a certain point stopped engaging with me because I just was turning more into a boy than I was his like, you know, beautiful young daughter. Um, which is fine by me because he was awkward and really hard to deal with and a hard person to talk to. But have you met him? No. Okay. Yeah, he's a very yeah, strange, awkward person. Other Iranian, it's funny, other Iranians who grew up in Iran and just have lived in the United States for only several years say he's like a typical Iranian male, yeah. Um, which to me, I'm like, he's this, compared to the other Iranian men that I knew, which was not so many growing up, and of them, they were very assimilated and also very, quote unquote, like, you know, affluent, successful, you know, whatever you want to call it. Um, he was a lot stricter, a lot more conservative. Um, anyway, I digress. I'm sorry, I'm digressing. Um, hey, you were talking about gender. And underwear. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I had a lot of freedom around that. I didn't have to, I didn't, I never had to wear a dress if I didn't want to. We'd go to weddings and and I would refuse to wear and this is as a young teenager like 13 years old I would refuse to wear a dress and then just not want to go to these weddings but my my mom would she was like wear whatever you feel comfortable with and I would go wearing pants and a nice shirt and I don't know I was really lucky in that way um sexuality I had no idea what it was to be gay I had no idea what it was to be you know, to have these desires for the same sex. And I did, and I had no idea what that meant. I didn't, I didn't know what the word, I didn't, that word was not in my vocabulary, not in Farsi, not in English. It just wasn't. Um, and then when it was in my vocabulary, certainly not about me, just because that's how I was raised. Um, then in my so and and I would have like hard crushes on these women like hard like obsessive hard crushes and not understanding what's going on and then I'm having this budding you know sexual awakening and not especially after sister Agnes and not knowing what to do about it or where you know how it was directed um and just knowing I was whatever just 
not even normal and not normal because normal was never a part of who I was ever. I was never normal. I was never accepted. I was never, you know, it's like I never knew what that meant. So of course, um, around sexuality, I wasn't normal either. And I just, but I didn't even know that. Um, so around sophomore year or junior year of high school, I went, um, my father, his, somebody he knew was getting his, it was a celebration of his PhD. It was mid-year, so it was probably November, December. And my father had a lot of respect for this person. And so we went to his house in the middle of Pennsylvania near, uh, near State College, near, um, near Penn State University. And at this time, let me date myself here. This is 90, this must have been 1990, 1990 or 91. The bands that were, I don't know, I was listening to the Indigo Girls. I was listening to, I can't even remember some of the other bands I was listening to, but Indigo Girls were a big one. Probably Michelle Schacht and other sort of postmodern, whatever music. Dar Williams? Oh my gosh. No, this is even before Dar Williams. Even before. Oh gosh. Taking me back. So anyway, I go out there for this person, whoever he was, his party, and there's this older girl there. So I must have been 15 or 16 years old. So she must have been just finishing high school. She must have been 18. So of course they were like, oh yeah, my daughter's just finishing high school. You guys should talk or hang out or do whatever. And a cousin of mine was there too. And, um, oh, I know what it was. It was my father's relative was getting his PhD. Here I talk about, you know, class and all this stuff. And I'm talking about people who are getting their PhDs. Uh, we can talk more about that later, but anyway, um, that was the world that I grew up in. Um, so it must have been his uh, advisor's house that we went to. So anyway, so this here's this like person. She's got the Indigo Girls on her refrigerator, and it's instantly something we can talk about. And these hiking boots that I had my eye on but could never buy. They were like Nike hiking boots, and... They were really freaking awesome, and nobody wore hiking boots then. Um, and uh, she was like, yeah, my friend's going to come pick pick us up, and then we're just, you know, why don't we just go grab a bite to eat while these guys all party, um, all this young kids. So it was her, her, what I later figured was her girlfriend, um, my cousin, who's this, of course, very typical... Iranian male going, you know, on track to be an engineer or, or some doctor or something stupid and uh, very conservative and dumb and like kind of not conservative, and dumb, but a uh, very um, jock sporty type. Uh, I, I didn't mean conservative. I was just more jock sporty and sort of clueless and me. So the girl played bass in a band she was 19 she was she lived around there she hung out at this you know the Penn State parties but didn't you know wasn't in college and I I was like soaking all of it in at the time as this young kid who had no idea that I was just hanging out with like this 
this queer couple. <laughs> they were, they must have been gay. So anyway, the next day we leave and I'm in the back seat of the car crying, 16 years old, crying. Why are you crying? Just depressed. Because I'd never seen a reflection of myself in my surroundings, in that, in Cherry Hill and anywhere. I just never felt connected to people. Like they were into music. I was into music. They had hiking boots. I liked hiking boots. Like they were queer. I, you know, they liked each other. They loved each other. They had a lot of respect for each other. And I had those feelings as well towards other women. So I think it's after that that I, um, that's the very first time that I walked away and I was like, there was something there that I'm not getting in my life anywhere else that that's, that was the first time I felt like I belonged is really what it is. I felt like I belonged and I could be who I was. I didn't have to feel the pressure of going to college or any of the things that I sort of didn't really organically want to do or feel like I was into, um, My God, I talk a lot about my life story, huh? I, it's like you get me started and uh, you can't shut me up. So did it, no, it's, that's good. <laughs> that's good, it's an oral history. So did this um, shape how you, you know, how did you imagine your future a little bit after that? You know, did, it, did you have, you know, ways of imagining your future and envisioning it? I think it was so influential to who I am today like it's un unreal I don't think I think you know you take steps forward because you see yourself reflected somewhere or I mean that for me anyway that's the way it is and maybe that's because I from two years old on was trained to try to assimilate as much as possible so you see what you want to be reflected in that world and then that's what you strive for and I don't know if that is other people's experience of assimilation or what but it's uh, and I don't know how other people move forward in this world but I, f I feel like that experience allowed me to have a little bit more confidence in who I was and being this like kind of other person um, in how I presented myself which was totally weird at the time um, in a gender non-conforming, what would now be called gender non-conforming way or androgynous way then. Um, because afterwards, I still didn't put two and two together about queerness and about sexuality. Because later in high school, my junior year, for example, and uh, I had a friend who was like, you're so gay, you're so gay, I can't believe you're not out of the closet, you're not out of the closet, that's crazy, you're so gay, look at your locker, it's full of women, <laughs> you are so gay, look at how you dress, you're so gay, you know, she just kept, you know, and then, and I was never opposed to it, and that would, started becoming a part of my vocabulary, and then I came out, and then in high school, in my senior year, I came out, and I did through this one girl who was, this is after I had these like heart-wrenching crushes and then kind of finally figured out I must be gay. Something must, you know, like I can't stop thinking about this one person and uh, dreaming about this person and thinking about them constantly. 
So then, uh, yeah, this girl had this crush on me, and I sort of had a crush on her. She was a lot younger, and we ended up hooking up, and she was like, oh, this is it. This is how it's supposed to be. I understand now. I'm queer. That's what this is. That's what all of this is about. All of this now makes sense. My, you know, all of the feelings that I had of belonging and not belonging, was it because I was Iranian or was it because I was queer or was it because I was gender nonconforming? And it's a bit of all of it, but coming out as queer, I think, put a lot of it in perspective. And then later on, you know, very early on in my life as a queer person, I was surrounded by trans people. I mean, trans women and men were all very close. I mean, a part of my circle and a close part of my circle. And I thought a lot about it in my early college days about transitioning and what that meant and my identity as, as what at that point, uh, and you know, there were the hot books of the time were like the third sex. <laughs> and um, I remember writing a paper around uh, what now we would, you know, call, we would talk about uh, what now we would call gender, non- gender nonconformity, but there was just nothing about it really not in the libraries that I went to. Um, So that really happened later on in college. Um, And that sort of awareness. And and even then, I think, um, when I think about gender, I think the most liberating time for me personally around my own gender has been in recent times with the sort of more accepted um, uh, pronoun use of they, them, and, you know, kind of getting away from this binary and allowing for more fluid and more self-defining, uh, uh, gender identity. So I just want to back up a little bit. So you were exposed to a lot of trans men, trans women in college, or was it through the punk scene? Or? It was mostly, I think, through this like sort of ragtag punk scene. Um, definitely more trans men, uh, less trans women, but uh, trans folk, yeah. I mean, you just, yeah, and being a part of the BDSM community in college, so in later on after college. Like going to you, there's this place in Philadelphia. I went to college in Philadelphia, and there's a place you went to called the Truck Stop, and that's that's just where we went. Like the le- people who, you know, were into leather, you ended up at the Truck Stop, or truck, Bike Stop. That's what it was called, the Bike Stop. Yes, where you ended up, and it was it was a place that was open to. Um, it was a leather bar, mostly for men, but it was open to trans men, and people like myself. I felt very comfortable there. And how old were you when you started hanging out or getting into that scene? Um, I was... That scene, bike stop and bar hopping, I was definitely 21. I wasn't so good at doing any of that kind of stuff before I was 21. I I never had a a fake license or any of that. (laughs) Oh, also in Philadelphia, there um, there are parties that were... Like, you could go to the... I grew up basically in the clubs of Philadelphia, and you could go to a club before you were 21. You just couldn't enter the bar. So there was, like, a lot of access to being queer and being gay and being, like, you know, a club kid or whatever. 
did you uh, in college when you were doing this exploration and you kind of returned to Philly and out of this you know uh, other setting did you um, come into conflict at all with sort of your family expectations or was that happening at that time or yeah absolutely yeah um yeah and it was also wrapped in in like drugs and alcohol too so it was a it was a very hard time for it was a very strained dynamic but then on the other end of it um so here's the situation was you know my family kind of didn't couldn't look at these communities that I was involved in and a part of um were incredibly homophobic um homophobic and uh uh, but then at the same time, I'm not, I'm not a citizen, so I can't actually go out and support myself. Like I can't get a job at, at 18 years old, um, because I can't. And I never really understood that. That's something that I didn't quite understand. I just had a certain amount of money that, uh, I was given, um, which was all I was given. And I had to figure out how to make it work. Um, and then like, you know, late, a little later on, like when I was 20, 19, 20 years old, I would, um, I would do like under the table jobs. I would do house painting or whatever, because, you know, they couldn't give me enough or a lot, or I wanted to, you know, do more drugs than, than that budget could allow for. (laughs) So, um, I found other ways, but, um, uh, But they definitely stopped. Uh, when I came out to my, well, when I came out to my father. Oh, yeah, here's the other part. Oh, yeah, I totally forgot about this one part of my life. So I, I had to leave. They couldn't afford to, for me to, to live in the dorms. And so I had to live at home for a year at 18 or 19 or something like 18. And I was out at that point, and um, um, my fa- I couldn't I couldn't talk to my father. When I came out to my father, or when I came out to my mother, uh, my father stopped talking to me, and I stopped talking to him. And we just didn't get along. We just, you know, like I had no choice but to live there because I couldn't get a job to live, you know, get a job, go to college, and live on my own. I just I didn't have that access. Um, and I didn't really know, I wasn't savvy enough to get a, an under the table job, you know, I just wasn't that smart or savvy, um, or I didn't have those friends or I didn't have that access, whatever the situation was. So I had to live at home for a year and it was really awful. And when I, I think that also is the reason why when I left and they gave me a certain amount of money per month to live, (laughs) it's because they couldn't take my queerness at all. Um, and they were like, just get them out of the house. Um, and here's the money and go and whatever. Good luck. Um, which again is a very, I, in hindsight, I got to say it was like, my mom did everything she could to support me, you know, cause, uh, they didn't have to do any of that. And I know other people that they didn't. So I'm so... Like, I look back, and even with everything that all of the homophobia that my mom or my parents had, they still supported me, you know? And that's amazing. It is amazing. Or my mom did, anyway. I don't know about my father. I'm sure he 
whatever. But my mother, for sure, stood by my side. Um, didn't talk to me. Didn't want to have anything to do with me. Had a very, very hard time with it for several years. But eventually turned around and is one of my, like, one... It, I just, I wish I could bottle up what it means to be um, a parent through my mother. Like, I wish she could tell her story because she 100% supports you know my gender identity and does what she can to to um, just to like you know publicly when she's introducing me introduces me as her child instead of as you know some genderizing it somehow and that's amazing to me it is absolutely amazing makes me I'm gonna cry now actually thinking about it because she's she's an incredible human being anyway um, so yeah it was hard but was it really hard I don't know or was I like an angsty you know teen late teen early 20s person you know who was like oh all these people they can work I can't work that's fucked up Yeah, in some ways it's fucked up. It's fucked up that I couldn't work and that I had no way of understanding what that meant. Um, But, you know, I kind of was taken care of, so it was all right. So, um, after you got out of school, um, tell me a little bit about what, you know, what that was like and, and, um, you know, what what you were doing then. Um, well, when I left school, it wasn't clear that I was going to finish college. Um, I just really didn't do well with school. I hated school. I hated college. I hated all this stuff that I actually had no other choice. I mean, I I couldn't, I did have, I always had a choice. Could always have left and figured something else out. It's just, you know, I didn't understand and didn't know and didn't, um, and that was what was in front of me. So why not? So it wasn't clear that I was going to finish, um, but then I suddenly finished um, with an incomplete, and so then I had to go on in my life. What were you studying? I started out studying physics, and uh, from <laughs> from the uh, <laughs> from the uh, pressure of my family, because uh, I didn't w- I wanted to be the radical that didn't you know like the renegade I should say that didn't do engineering or. Actually, everybody in my family did engineering or some kind of computer programming, and I wanted to be the one that did physics. Um, But anyway, I was failing out of that. So one day, again, another testament to how much my mom supported me, um, even though it made her really angry and she didn't understand and didn't like what I was doing. Um, One day I just got up and I walked into the film program at Drexel University my sophomore year, when it was clear I was failing out of college. And I said, I think I want to be in the film program. I don't like, I don't think I'm doing well in physics. Didn't tell my parents um, and just did it. And they had no other choice. Maybe that's eventually, you know, the reason why they forced me to leave that place and, you know, whatever. They didn't force me. They couldn't afford it anymore. But uh, so I studied film after that. so um, after that, I just beelined it out of, I spent the summer in Philadelphia and, and um, made some friends in Philadelphia through, 
you know, just through the queer community that uh, were working in, in the film world in New York and uh, got landed a, a job on a film and in Park Slope. I lived in Park Slope, walked, uh, got this, found this apartment, drove to New York, knocked on this person's door. There, there was like a listing, a Craig's, not Craigslist, it was at the time, it was um, in the Village Voice. There was an ad and I responded and I went all the way there, which is two hours away, and knocked on this person's door and it turns out she's Iranian. So, and she was living with her boyfriend in this apartment in Park Slope on 13th Street between 4th and 5th Avenues or 3rd and 4th Avenues, I don't remember. And the apartment was 300 bucks a month. <laughs> so I uh, saved up and uh, my parents also helped me. And uh, I stayed in that apartment for a month or two and worked on this film. And then at that point it was done. Like I was able to get a job after that and find another sublet and another sublet and so on. And uh, moved to New York and started working in the film industry. What did you start doing when you moved to New York? I started being a camera assistant, which is really cool, I, which is what I do today. Um, can you uh, tell me a little bit about um, what, uh, how long did you, were you working in New York, and what, what was New York like when you, when you were there shooting these, these films? Uh, New York was awesome. I was... Um, It was really great. A little thing before that is that I was really wrapped up in Philadelphia before I left for New York with, um, with uh, you know, it's like I was a club kid and so there's a lot of cocaine. Um, and uh, it's just, uh, I needed, I knew I had a problem and I knew that I was in a real, f you know, fucked up situation and fucked up situations um, wherever I was living and the friends that I was with. And so I didn't know how to get out of that other than to uh, just leave. Um, and also there was no film scene here and I was like, you know, I was a film person, I loved film and cinema and it was like the budding heyday of independent films then, I mean it was like the time of, of Spike Lee's early films and, um, uh, and like uh, Go Fish and others, sort of like gay films, it was just the heyday for all of that. Um, So I sort of left in order to, I was still drinking, but I wanted to sober up from drugs. Um, so the film scene was awesome. I kind of bloomed into who I am. I always felt like Philadelphia. I mean, this is just my perspective, and I know Philadelphia has changed a lot. But Philadelphia to me was partly miserable all the time. And every time I would come to New York... It was like people were just itching for life and were living. And um, there was just a spring in the step, and it didn't matter where I was. I felt that, um, although I'd never really traveled too far around New York, it was always a certain, you know, you went to the meatpacking you know, meat neighborhood or the East Village. Um, So it was, it was definitely fun. It was very indie. I was, uh, I worked on, I worked, I made like very little money working on indie films. In fact, my first job, I remember I wasn't getting paid, but then halfway through the job, I was like, dude, you have to pay me. 
I like it was insane they had me loading it was just really crazy it was a crazy job I was driving the truck and I was loading the film and I was the first one there and the last one out and wasn't sleeping much and it was six day weeks and you know it's like everything that you imagine a young young person's you know first job in the film industry being it was that um so I felt the full glamour when I was 22 years old um it was it was fun I had a really good time um I would go from I one of my sublets was in the uh Upper East Side with this Irish this person from Ireland and it turns out that that building on the Upper East Side was historically a place where Irish folk when they came from Ireland would they you know it's like it was all Irish people from Ireland um, and so and Grania her name was and she needed she needed a roommate so I again for like 300 bucks a month rented a room in her apartment um, and I remember there were days that like I didn't have enough money to go from the Upper East Side down to the Lower East Side which is where I would hang out at Meow Mix um, so I would walk <laughs> the 90 blocks or sometimes like cab drivers would just pull over and be like here five you've got five bucks I'll take you down there for five bucks and it was it would have cost more than that in the cab at the time um it was fun but it was also wrapped around a lot of like drugs and drinking and at a certain point I think when I was probably 23 years old I was I had this mentor person who I had a relapse back into like you know I was working on this film and films also very drug-induced business and I remember this guy um, I don't know I just I had a relapse and I was really upset about that with myself and she was like you need to just stop drinking and so I went sober at 23 or 24 years old and uh, that it was very interesting being a former club kid, being sober and going to like Meow Mix and Henrietta Hudson's and um, oh, what were some of the other ones? Um, uh, that one dance, the one like club that was, it'll come to me. And some of the other parties that would happen. There were a lot more like bars catering to women then too than there are now. Yeah, women, women of color. I mean, it was awesome. Um, and it was great going to all of those places. I came from this punk background, so I tended to just stick to Meow Mix and being a Virgo and someone who's like more into like, you know, stability. I would go to the same place all the time. So it was interesting being a person who went to Meow Mix as someone who's sober. It was interesting being sober going to Meow Mix because they had, they respected that. People respected that. And I found a niche there and people who, like I was, you know, I don't know. It was just, I was a familiar person there. So that was cool. What was the scene like at Meow Mix? Because that was way before my time in New York. It was awesome. It was raucous. It was mean. It was... What kind of music did they play? They had... Oh, man, they had all sorts of punk bands come in, rock. Um, you know, it was, uh, it was diverse. It was racially diverse. Somewhat. Um... But it was like punk, and that was that was the sort of era of punk dykes and 
and the queer punk time, you know, the time when that music was just coming about. Um, it was fun. It was a lot of fun. I had a, I had a really good time hanging out. I had a core group of friends. We would just hang out. I don't even, I don't remember. I mean, it was so organic. I don't remember because we didn't have phones. Actually, I did have a pager because I was in the film business and you needed to have a pager and then eventually a cell phone. Um, so we would page each other and meet up. Um, but you just hung out more. You just hung out with people. You just relaxed more. It wasn't... I, I was on the go a lot and busy often, but it just was a... I, I don't know. It was a more connected way of having friends and friendship. Um... So, nannies, crazy nannies. So when you were in, um, so how long were you doing this, um, this kind of camera assistant stuff um, before you you decided to go to graduate school, right? I was doing it until after 9/11. So 9/11 happened, um, and I was couch surfing at the time, uh, and uh, I was couch surfing because I was looking for an apartment. I didn't find one, and that's just what you did. I don't know. Especially when you're in your 20s. I guess people do it now. I'm just, I'm like, God, I can't believe I was just couch surfing. Anyway, so after that happened, it became really, it was really, really challenging to be anywhere on set in New York City. Um, I remember I was working between two, two of my main gigs. One was Third Watch, where... Uh, it's a TV show about, um, I should say I was in the union. I was a, a union camera assistant and I was working in television, which was a very coveted position at the time because uh, there wasn't a lot of TV then. Um, and it was good It was good money. It was the salary, or not the salary, I should say. The, um, the wage was good. Um, and the work was network work, so it was nine months out of the year. So you knew you were working. Um, unlike other kinds of freelance where you kind of were always on the hustle. So I fell into these people. So Third Watch was a television show about um, the NYPD, FDNY, and, um, and uh, what is it, the ambulance? What are they Paramedics. Paramedics uh, who were on the Third Watch, so from 6 p.m. until midnight. Um, and sort of like their relationships to each other and to the world and to the city and to the people that they were of course you know policing and whatnot so being on that kind of a job I think before 9-11 I could just blindly go into that work in that job and not have to think about what I was doing um, and what I was a part of but then after 9-11 it just was like you know I remember 9-11 and I always had a you know, I was, I was never really, you know, um, I had a good understanding that I was just a part of this machine and that I was making money and that's what I was doing. That's, I, this wasn't, part of me thought that this could be a career path, but I came out of the world of film where I believed in film as an art, you know, and I've, 
and as a, an art practice and a, a, a way of, of you have a message and this is a way of, of bringing that message out. Um, I'm not also very verbal, so it's sometimes it's hard for me to find the right words. So it's not very eloquent, what I'm saying. But, um, so I remember distinctly after 9-11, uh, and this is, I'll come back to why I left, but uh, the next, that, that day or the next day, this African-American guy walking down the street being like, you know, they're saying it's terrorists. Well, I get terrorized by the police every day, you know? And I remember how that, I remember being like, I'm, I feel so, I, I'm so glad I was, I heard what he had to say on his cell phone. Because, um, you know, there was a lot of, in this city, there was, it was just a, it was so fanatical. I mean, it was an insane thing that had just happened. Where, where were you when it happened? It was, I was in a cafe on Fifth Avenue in Park Slope when the first plane hit and I was supposed to look at apartments with the person that I was going to move in with and uh, my cell phone stopped working and I called her from a pay phone and she said a plane just crashed into the World Trade Center and I so anyway I was in Park Slope anyway I, was, I remember thinking a plane I, like it didn't make any sense to me and all I kept thinking is oh she means a helicopter you know missed its target and hit the MetLife building like in my head that's what I thought and I remember it was a crystal clear day. I remember looking up and there was a plume of smoke and I didn't know. Okay, so let me. Okay, so I'm just continuing the interview, or the, sorry, the oral history right now. I just had to uh, reform, uh, change the, the card. So just going to pick up where we were. Um, so we were talking a little bit about 9-11 and you were explaining that the people on the show Third Watch, uh, the show that you worked on, were some of them were firefighters, paramedics, etc., who did consulting on the show and had actually died in the Twin Towers. And that's, that's what we were starting to talk about. So if you could just pick up there. So there was... Uh, some of that that was happening. So I was working on the show that was like, you know, pretty much uh, very police oriented and uh, and whatnot. And um, um, and uh, the show after after September 11th, you know, after a couple of weeks, the show picked up again because this is entertainment, and the show must go on, no matter what. And I was also working on another, so that was the first show that I was working on to give you a sense of it. And the other one was called The Education of Max Bickford with, um, with uh, Marsha Gay Harden and, uh, oh my God, what's the guy's name? He was in um, Richard, Richard, I can't remember. Anyway, uh, I'll think of it later. Um, so on one hand, there's like the 9-11 show that they did on third watch um where they're just dealing with september 11th as people who are responding to what's happening and then there's the other show max bickford who's dealing with 9-11 um in this sort of quote-unquote neoliberal way where um the with so the max max the whole context of the show max bickford also ties into gender by the way um 
is that it's just this faculty person working at this guy, Richard, what's his name? Oh my God. What, what movies was he in? Um, the, uh, it's gonna come to me. Words are very hard for me. Um, oh my God. Uh, Close Encounters. He was Close Encounters. Um, I don't think I've seen that movie actually, sadly. Um, anyway, so uh, he's at this all-girls school and he's a faculty member and it's like sort of uh, one of the professor or one of the other professors at this all-girls school is a trans woman played by a cisgendered woman, um, which was its own sort of fucked upness. Um... So that show dealt with 9-11 like um, uh, a character on the show who is a student, a young girl student, goes to learn Arabic uh, so that she can go to Afghanistan and help. Um, So here I am on the show and we're filming it and I'm turning to, you know, at at the time I I was really young. uh, So I'm turning to different people and I'm like, do they know that they don't speak Arabic in in Afghanistan, does anybody know that? Um, you're saying something that's inaccurate. And so it just became really uncomfortable. And then also everybody uh, after 9-11 was, uh, everybody, be- everyone became a hawk. Uh, it didn't matter who you were. Um, very few people were anti-war. And uh, both my partner and I at the time were super, you know, we were going to demonstrations and we were, you know, we went to D.C., we went to the demonstrations here. We were, um, her more than me, was part of this, um, uh, before 9-11, part of, like, the anti-World Bank movement that was happening all throughout the United States and the world. Um, and so she was a little more tapped into all of these demos. Um, so it just became really hard because everybody on the film set was super hawkish. And uh, I, I'll never forget being on on uh, Max Big for this TV show, Max Bigford, and uh, something must have happened uh, before the Iraq war, and the stand-in for Richard Dreyfus, that's his name, Richard Dreyfus. The stand-in for Richard Dreyfus was just like, we should nuke the shit out of them. And that's where I was like, I have to get out of here. I'm like, this is kill- this is killing me. It's eating me up inside. So working in an anti-Muslim environment and, and just the being Iranian and anti-war and, you know, leftist in that kind of an environment where I couldn't talk about my politics at all and I was surrounded by people who were just wanted anybody like myself to not exist um, was just eating me up inside. It was really hard. Um, coupled with the sexism and overall misogyny that is that was and that is for sure still in the industry as a camera assistant as someone who I that I really my intention was to continue being a camera assistant and work up and be you know move up in in the world of assisting in the world of 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 cinema to shooting to being a director of photography and it just became super apparent after 
you know, five, six years in the industry that that was not going to happen. And, uh, and in fact, there was so much massages, like the glass ceilings, like everything that in college when I was taking my feminist classes, like everything you read about, it was, it was textbook um, in the industry. The glass ceiling, the like, you know, like very polite people that <laughs> sort of push you aside. Um, just the buddy buddy guy you know the guy's just like really it's like you you're you can't do the job but this guy can um anyway so it was really eating me up inside and I was still an artist I was in my I was in my late 20s I was like no I'm an artist I can't do my art I'm working all the time I'm working on these shows with people who hate me and I don't like what they're saying. It's eating me up inside. I don't want to be around it. I just, I need to take care of myself. So I wanted to leave New York. So I told my partner, let's leave New York. And uh, she said, okay, I'll do it. Even though her career was just sort of launching as a high school teacher. I shouldn't say career, because it's not a career path. <laughs> but she was in schools that she liked, um, uh, that she uh, liked the curriculum and the style of teaching. Um, but still thought that, yeah, she needed to get out of the city for a minute as well. So that's what led me to leave. It was really, I think it, in hindsight, it was, I left in 2003. It was like two years of post nine 11 trauma, um, and not really having anywhere or anybody to work it out with. Um, so it was, so yeah. Did you not find people in the queer community that you could talk to about this stuff? I mean, not, not really. I think my group, my group of, I mean, yeah, I mean, maybe we would talk about it, but it just, I didn't, again, it was like until you see, you really have other Middle Eastern folks that you're talking to that really understand. You know, I had one friend whom, if people may recognize the story, but um, she, because of her last name, even though she had grown up around her, you know, one side of her family that was all Jewish and she identified as Jewish and definitely felt culturally like that way to me when I knew her, After 9-11, she had a, a very Muslim last name uh, because her father's side of was uh, not Jewish. And uh, anyway, so she would get phone call after phone call after phone call after phone She's really the only one I could talk to, and we didn't really, you know, there was something. What do you mean phone call after phone call? Oh, hate, hate, f hatred phone calls and hate. Uh, uh, just like, you know, your people should die. You're all awful. You're terrible. Like, she had to... She, I can't remember, but it was, I can't remember what she had to do in order to stop that, but she eventually left New York. She couldn't take it anymore. Um, she took her name off of the, out of the phone book. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess she was really the only one. Did you get involved at all in activism at that time, or did you just leave? Yeah, but because of my work, I couldn't really get involved with any organizations, and I'm sure there were some pretty incredible ones at the time. Um, 
definitely a lot of activity happening and some pretty freaking awesome things but uh i had to make a living so i yeah so i didn't and i couldn't so i i left and i left thinking i want to you know make films or maybe i could leave and try to figure out what else i could do in life and ended up applying to grad school and got into a grad school in canada and went and yeah so how were things there in, in Canada when you, uh, post 9-11? Canada was amazing. I mean, it's, it's like a, being in another country where they speak English, but culturally have, are, are similar, but also a little bit different. Um, with an analysis of the United States. Um, that, yeah, it was, it was really, it was wonderful during the Bush era to be outside of the United States and not, and to be in, in a country where, you know, being an artist is a right, you know, it's not something where you have to like, write. you have to, um, you know, it's not like a very decadent thing that only certain very privileged people do, you know. Um, What years were you in, in Canada? I was in Canada from 2006 to 2008. Uh, and I was in Minneapolis from 2004 to 2006. And Minneapolis is its own sort of sort of insanity because it's one of the, you know, it's a very Minnesota, Midwest, very white, Protestant. Um, it's uh, Scandinavian, deep socialist roots because um, it's like the Scandinavian people who landed there um, you know they were farmers and they were socialist farmers and anyway so it's interesting there were a lot of collectives and co-ops and that's the way it sort of looked and manifested but it also was um, a racially divided city um, and it had one at the time one of the largest populations of um Uh, Somali and Ethiopian refugees and it's 2006 um, and so I started working with them uh, in youth, these different youth media organizations that was freaking that was amazing um, it was also a, a total um, eye-opening experience on you know just as refugees what these folks had to deal with and had, you know they were young they were young people so they lived most of their lives in camps in refugee camps and I don't know, just you know how they you know what they had to do you know how they lived grew up in these camps and then came to the United States to like you know quote, quote unquote live their lives and they're And then their, like, you know, experience of, of racism and otherness is, is it's just like they're, they're uh, I, I can only gesture to this, like they're slammed against the wall of racism, you know, in the United States with no opportunities and no chances of, of you know, any kind of, of life or, wow, they're really yelling to each other over there. <laughs> like across the park. 
<laughs> so what brought you to Minneapolis? Why Minneapolis before Toronto? Uh, my partner's family is from Minnesota. And so she said, if we're going to leave New York, I want to be around my family. So let's go there. I wanted to go to Santa Fe. I was like, you know, let's go somewhere warm. That's a dream. And I don't know. I hear Taos is really good. I have a savings account. Let's just go. And she was like, yeah, we're going to go to Minnesota. So, again, no Iranians. <laughs> My interactions with other people who are Muslim was these very devout, <laughs> you know, Somali and um, people and Ethiopian. Um, and so, I don't know, it was just very, it was different. Um, and a lot of white liberal crusty punks like a lot of white liberal people a lot of them some of them are awesome and two of them are some of like my favorite people on the planet too and the rest is like you know I don't know whatever yeah so when you came to New York um, when you returned to New York after that time away can you tell me a little bit about what brought you back yeah, I mean, I think at the end of the day, however I feel, I, however I felt about New York when I left, I knew that the East Coast was a part of my system and Philadelphia still made me feel miserable and just, uh, there were a lot of beautiful things about New York and a lot of what you would think would be opportunity here. Um, so I really wanted to come back here. And I was really lucky to land a job at a university. And yeah, I, I wanted to be an artist here. I mean, I didn't want to actually, to be perfectly honest, I didn't want to come back. I wanted to stay in Canada because I knew coming back to the United States meant I'd have to engage in this very capitalist mindset art world. And that's not, I felt really liberated in, in, Toronto, in Canada being an artist I didn't have to make anything other than what from the inside was screaming to come out you know I didn't have to shape it and mold it any way unless I wanted to uh, and the the art that I was surrounded by there blew my mind you know and it they were in artist-run centers they were not or what's called artist-run centers they were not a part of any sort of corporate gallery or any kind of gallery that sold art the buying and selling of art was something that, it's funny, artists there were like, I dream of that. What a wonderful way to, to, you know, you get to sell your art. But I was like, oh my God, you got what residency? You just got $5,000 from the government? Um, there were faculty who got $100,000 grants from the Canadian government to make their art pieces. And... It's like, that's, that's, that was incredible. I was not looking forward to coming back, to be honest. Um, because I had a feeling that I wouldn't be able to make the art that I wanted to make. I'd be, you know, locked into this sort of gallery world. And I, yeah. So, but my partner was back and she couldn't live in Toronto. She had a very hard time finding a job as a high school teacher. And in particular, one that works with, um, an alternative pedagogy and um, young people who've been sort of disenfranchised from the from the public school system. Um, that's those are the people that she's the most that she you know 
feels the most passionate about and enjoys working with. And there, she, there's no sort of, it's like you can't take that kind of way into Canada without understanding the cultural nuances in Canada around, you know, the history and, and how and why, you know, that particular situation came to be. Whereas in, in the United States, she can, or in, in particular in New York, she has, you know, has a very firm understanding of that. And so, uh, so she wanted to come back. So here we are. We're back here, and I, that's really what it was. That's what brought me back is her. That's what took me to Minnesota is her. So can you tell me a little bit about, um, about what kinds of art you make and what you, you know, what you're, you know, what you're, or what you're interested in making, I guess? Um, I don't know. I think it's, uh, I do work around, um, around these like in-between spaces where you know things aren't very clear I do work around identity what I call it I mean the easy way to to describe it is it's installation work a lot of it is film based um, I love motion picture film like a- analog film both in still photography and in um, the moving image or motion picture um, I come from an experimental background so um, nonlinear narratives um, and then what grad school uh, gave me access to was to bring that into an installation space. Um, so uh, it ends up looking like um, imagery that is and objects that uh, you engage with um, that allude to a certain feeling as you know depends on what it is you know sometimes it's a nostalgic feeling sometimes it's a feeling of of like a jittery sort of feeling of um uh, unknowing um so the work that i'm trying to do now is more sculptural and film-based um uh, two channels or multiple channels um and uh the the very process-oriented, so process is almost as important as the final quote-unquote product. Um, I don't know, it's hard to describe because uh, I want to do more work with wood and with sculpture, um, but I can never put down a camera. I love, and I, I just love film. I love shooting. Uh, so the pieces that I want to make now are more about, um, I think, um, I don't know, being 41 in the queer community, being, you know, what that looks like as far as community is concerned, um, queerness is concerned, gender nonconformity is concerned, um, uh, being an immigrant, being, uh, being, um, being Muslim, being, or, uh, being born Muslim, I should say, and um, about these identities of in-betweenness. I think that's really the thing. Yeah, I don't. Th- I think I just rambled. I don't think I came to any. I mean, I have an idea of what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. So hopefully, the people who listen to it will too. Um, I guess my final, my final question is. Um, 
is uh, what what do you um, what do you uh, envision like well what do I want to say um, what do I want to say hold on let me think about it for one second oh yeah I know totally maybe that's a good one sure Okay, I finally figured out how I'm going to ask this question. Okay, um, given that you just said, you know, much of your art practice and the issues you're concerned about uh, concern are, are involved with this notion of in-betweenness, and you are, you know, 41, you are gender non-conforming and this sort of thing, and I'm just wondering what do you, what do you envision as being, you know, um, the future for your work and... And what are some challenges do you you see to, you know, to your life, given your your subject position and also the the way that you know our communities are structured in New York right now? Yeah, I mean, I it's uh, I I really fight this um, for all that I've never felt like I've belonged or have never felt. <laughs> Uh, like normal or what does normal mean or you know I hate that word anyway but felt like I belong belonging and conforming I feel like as I grow older each year my life looks uh, more and more normalized and I really my hope is to disrupt that because it becomes really easy especially being in a long-term relationship with a partner for many 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 for over a decade you just fit into this way and you sort of disengage from the community and or from any kind of a community and my hopes for my own work moving forward and for my life moving forward is to um, not give into that and to be a part of uh, communities and community or to create I don't want to say be a part of community because community is a is a you know very questionable word anyway what is community and what is that who defines community but to to create everywhere I am to create that community or to to be a part of the creation of a community whether it's you and I here talking together um, or when I walk down the street um, to just be aware of that and to just um, I don't know to hold that more to disengage less to um, to make sure, and this has been, this is also why uh, this next thing is, I think, one of the most important uh, elements that I have always hoped for, and that I've I've wanted to be an intervention within "quote unquote" queer community, uh, and I can't thank you enough for this opportunity. I hope it's whatever it's okay. Is that? Um, my through this queer community there's been a lot of you know when I came back to New York there was a lot of um, sort of contention within queerness and queer community and there's a lot of conforming and it became this sort of click in this group and this idea of community is is, is this like homogenous thing that I have uh, resist and don't don't believe in um, and uh, I found especially within the quote unquote queer arts world that I was 
sort of because I was someone who believed certain things and was, I don't know why, I don't know why. Maybe it's my own cultural upbringing, maybe it's my sensitivity, I don't know. But I was sort of pushed out. And so other people's stories get told. You know, kind of people who are more dominant or who have this sort of rhetoric. And um, I just wanted to make sure that people, not just me, but just there is space for everyone's story to be memorialized, let's say, or, um, or, or be written in the history books. You know, when we talk about a certain time in the queer art world, it, I know it's going to be certain people's names who are foregrounded. And I was there. I was a part of that show. Um, I was a part of like the mixed film festival, for example, but I couldn't stomach some of the things that were happening. And so I disengaged from it because I was never the kind of person because of how I was raised or who I was throughout my upbringing or throughout my childhood. I was never the person to say, you need to accept me and to hear my voice. I was never that person. I was always the person to say, I don't belong here. I'm going to leave. So I want to make sure that as I grow older and, you know, I'm wiser, I have more confidence in myself, I have more, um, I have a, a, I hopefully am able to see situations in a more complex way than I was a decade ago or two decades ago. I want to just be able to make sure that, you know, people's histories be told and people's voices be heard. Um, queer, not queer, trans, non-trans, doesn't just, certain people are silenced in this society in the United States. And, um, and I just wanna make sure that that doesn't happen. So collaboration is a really important part of the work that I wanna bring into the world. Um, and like honest collaboration. Um, and um, I don't know, just, yeah, community and uh, collaboration. I think that's a good note to, to <laughs> end. Um, thank, well, thank you so you. much. Thank you. No, thank you. Yeah. I talked. <laughs>